But if you want a title for today's message, I've called this Don't Waste Your Decisions. And I'd be grateful if you turn with me please to Psalm 32. If you're one of our singles here and you came to a night that we did just before Christmas on decision making, this is all going to sound particularly familiar. And in one sense I apologise for that. In another sense, decisions are so frequent. I'm not completely repentant that I'm telling you again. And so let's pray before we get into this together. Well, Lord, I thank you that we got to worship you in song this morning. And Lord, thank you for presencing yourself here yet again. Thank you that we have the Holy Spirit living in our hearts that points us to the Father, points us to the Son. Lord, we're so grateful that you are with us. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that as the song ends, you don't go anywhere. You're still with us. Still seeking to help us. Still seeking to bring the word of God to bear in our lives. So Lord, help us. Open our eyes to behold the wonders of your law. Amen. You know, whether we like it or not, life is, is pretty full of decisions, isn't it? They just happen all the time and we can't escape it. So where should I live? What would be a good house for me to live in? Where would you know, it be a good place for me to live? I know that my life's not my own. I know that I'm the Lord's. So, does that mean I just live anywhere or what would he have me do in there? What about job? What type of job would be good for me to take? What type of career would it be good to pursue? What about money? When I have that career and I actually have money, I understand that everything I have is actually the Lord's. So, how do I know what to do with it? There's so many different options, so many decisions that need to be made within there. What about my time and my energy? What about relationships? Who should I go out with? I go out with that individual, who, who should I marry? When should I marry them? How long should I take to marry them? What about children? Should we wait like two weeks? A year? Five years? What, what would be a good time? What about church? I understand its significance biblically, but where should I position myself and my wife and my family in the context of church to be walking in line with scripture and playing my part for the building and for the body? What part should I play? How should I seek to use my gifts in the context of the local church? And what about life groups? You know, there's so many of them. So which one should I join? How do I know which people within life group to really give myself to this year and build relationally with? Life is full of many, many decisions. Decisions are such a massive and significant part of our lives. And yet I think for so many Christians, decisions in particular, finding out what God wants you to do within a decision is often filled with great uncertainty and confusion. And so we can be unsure. You know, how do I make a good decision? How do I find the will of God for my life in the midst of an array of things that I could do? How do I know that this is the path that God has prescribed for me and that I'm actually walking on it for the glory of the Lord as opposed to just doing something I want to do? How do I know that God is really guiding me in the midst of my decisions. Well, Dr. Bruce Waltke, in, in an excellent book called Finding the Will of God, says it this way. He says, For many Christians, discerning the will of God is a mystery. A career woman with a desire to serve God unexpectedly finds a travel brochure from the Marshall Islands. Is God telling her to move to the islands as a missionary? A young Christian trying to decide whether to attend a Christian college is encouraged to pray and find the mind of God. After he prays, his friend asks him, Quick, 
What are the first thoughts the Lord puts into your mind? A retiree running about where to invest her money lets the Bible fall open and then blindly points to a verse in Scripture. The verse is about little children coming to Christ, so she decides to give money to a child evangelism organisation. Well-meaning, but are these really valid methods for determining God's will for our lives? You know, that last one, I've done. Growing up, I grew up in a very Pentecostal church, very, very grateful for my upbringing. I'm very grateful for the Lord for what that church taught me. Um, and yet some of the things I don't necessarily still practice. And I remember being taught like the holy finger. So you really did just flick through the Bible. I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do. <laughs> oh, and when he had entered the house, I'm to go to a house. It really was like that. We just thought that God would guide our holy finger uh, and whatever it was in the Bible at that point that we're doing it. And it was because there was total uncertainty and confusion on this issue. We wanted to please the Lord, but how do you know? How do you know what his will is for our lives? Well, by way of backdrop to today's topic on decisions, I'm so grateful to God for this psalm that you have in front of you. Psalm 32. See, Psalm 32 is one of David's penitential psalms. He begins by delighting in the blessing of forgiveness. So he just starts, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. He's delighting in all that the Lord has done for him and how he has washed him clean from his sin. He then goes on to talk about God's protection, how God hides us, how God preserves us, very similar to Psalm 121, how God is our fortress. He is the one that will be our refuge in and through all things. But then in verse 8, God breaks into the psalm. It's quite wild in the way it's done, in the way it's written. David is speaking about things, but then he becomes an oracle for God himself in verse 8. God breaks in, and in verse 8, God says this. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. David has been talking about being forgiven and God being his refuge. God breaks in and God wants to make it clear to David and the people of God and therefore indeed us gathered here today that there are two promises for our lives. There is a promise of intimate care. That's what it means to know that I will counsel you with my eye upon you. There is this promise of I'm going to watch you. In the first half of that verse there's also the promise of God's guidance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I'm not only going to be with you, I'm going to guide you. I'm going to help you. Well, today then, with that as a backdrop, I want to look at the question, how then does God guide us? Knowing that this is so often an area of uncertainty, I believe God wants to bring certainty to our souls. And knowing that there is so often on this a source of confusion and misconception, I believe God wants to bring us clarity. Now, for those of you that are new, we usually preach exegetically here at Sovereign Grace, which means we take two verses or more and we literally go deep into them. And yet there are times when you're bringing the whole will of God onto people's lives, you need to go thematic. You need to look at what does the Bible say about this issue. It's called systematic theology by and large. And so today we're going to do that. We're going to be looking systematic theology as the Bible as a whole. And what does it say about how God guides us? And I hope as we do that, that it really will bring clarity to us and understanding as we realise, oh, so that's the way we find the will of God for our lives. So four things, four things that are designed to serve you 
I believe God wants to serve us in making clear to us how he guides us and therefore how we make decisions for his glory. So how does he guide us? Number one, he guides us first and foremostly through his word. It's through this. His primary guidance comes through this book that you have in your hands or on your iPad or your iPhone or whatever is in front of you. It's primarily through that. And so if you imagine a Jenga stack, if you were looking at the three chips at the bottom, they are God's word. You take them out, everything else falls down. We have to have God's word in understanding is the way he, does, he, is the way he guides us. So Psalm 119, verses 105, simply says this, and it's extraordinary. He says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What a wonderful promise of God's guidance that is, don't you think? Your word, this word that you have in your hands, will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. You know, I remember for, when I was uh, younger, I used to be a youth pastor, first of all, and I remember we used, to, we, just, we just used to think of things that were really fun to do with the kids. So we made up this thing called a lock-in. So we had the Christchurch Centre, and what we did is we brought them all in one night, and we just locked the doors, and we didn't let them out until 8 o'clock a.m. the next day. And so we just all rocked up, and like, we're here for 12 hours, right, what are we going to do? And we used to just make up crazy things to do. And so I came up with this idea that I think it would be really fun, I was younger, so it just helps you, I think it would be really fun if we turned all the lights off, and then we chased you. (laughs) You know... So they all, they all go running up. They think this is a cool idea. The youth leaders chasing them. And it was a massive building. It was a really big building. So they're trying to hide in the roof and stuff like that. But what we didn't tell them is myself and some of the other youth leaders, we had massive water pistols. These things were huge. And we got those really long torches and strapped them to the top. So it was like something out of FBI as we were walking around with the water pistols. So everything is completely dark. And then we're going around the place with these massive water pistols and, of course, with a big torch on the front. So they think they're hidden. They're just hiding in the corners of rooms. It's embarrassing. And then we walk in the room, the torch goes on, and again, and they didn't have a change of clothes because we didn't tell them, but that was the fun of it. But the point is, they were in complete darkness, so they're fumbling around the place, and yet we had a torch on our gun, and it was obvious where they were. Well, the Bible so often, I think, paints the picture of how our world is in darkness. We often don't know what to do in the context of decisions. So what does God do? He says, listen, I'm going to give you a light for your path. I'm going to give you a torch. I'm going to give you something that's going to help you discern how to make decisions, how God will guide you in the midst of what you're walking through in your life. That's why we read, and it's really no surprise in Psalm 1, just turn there briefly, in Psalm 1 it's no wonder that the psalmist says this, he says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is what he's like. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So you get this guy, he's walking through life, he's not quite sure what decision to make, where God wants him to go next. So what does he do? Well, he meditates on this law day and night. And then all that he does then, he feels a refreshment, a nourishment. It's stable and durable, it's flourishing and fruitful. In all that he does, he prospers. Why? Because he's giving himself to this word. And it's in light of this word he's making his decisions. 
He's moving forward in light of this, the light that is into his path. It's no wonder, likewise, that when Paul is dying, when he's aware that his days are coming to an end, he writes to Timothy, it's the book of 2 Timothy that we know of, and he says this to him. He says, but as for you, Timothy, continue what you've learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. That is a reason that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Every good work. Everything. Everything we need is in here. And Paul knew it. So as he trains his young man in the faith, knowing that he will soon be breathing his last, he says, Timothy, tells him two things ultimately. I want you to guard the good deposit. I want you to keep the gospel the main thing. And Timothy, be guided by this. Because this is God-breathed. And if you want every man in your church and every woman in your church to be equipped for every good work, just get this into them. And they'll have enough. Why? Because that's the primary way that God guides us. He doesn't guide us by the holy finger, I don't think. That's not the way it works. But as we read it and we meditate on it, we spend time with the Lord, I believe what we have is a grid work for our lives that we face some decisions and it's just obvious. Because in light of the Gospels or in light of what Paul said there in Philippians or in light of what Paul said there in Ephesians, we know what to do. Because we've read it. And the guardrails are there in our lives because we're guided by this word and it's providing a lamp unto our feet. You know, we live in a busy city and I really like that. I, I like busy, you know. I, I like to go away to quiet but then I'm ready to come back to busy because I just like this. You know, if I could live on a roller coaster, I probably would. You know, I just like this. this let's do this. I, I enjoy that. I, I live loud. I live fast. I enjoy it. We live in a very busy city. And we live in a, in a really a golden generation, I think, where if you want to be busy, you can be busy. See, when I was a kid, you used to phone people on a telephone that had a cord. And if you wanted to, like, get in touch with them, you'd write them a letter and you'd stick a stamp on it and it'd be there in three days. You know, that's the way you communicated. Whereas now you've got Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and FaceTime and Skype. And there's loads of different ways that people can get hold of us really quickly. And if you notice, the people are usually offended if you haven't got back to them within about 45 minutes. You know, what is this person doing? He clearly what, he's not, does not like me anymore. We live with this like, oh, I've got to respond. No, you haven't. We live in a busy city with a busy generational situation going on because of the amount of information that we get told and asked all the time. We live in a golden age for online Christian publishing. Things like blogs, where you don't get the time to sit down and read God's word, you just get a small verse and then what somebody thinks about it. I like living in a busy city. I like the fact that we can communicate well in our generation. I like the fact that there's good Christian publishing. But we must guard against being seduced by the world in this as if we just have to jump on and go along with it. When God clearly says, this is your guide. This is it. We've got to make time for this. 
Because when the man of God does that and meditates on the word day and night, in all that he does, he prospers. It doesn't say when the man of God maybe tries to fit in the word once a week because he's so busy and all that he does, he prospers. We need to be guided by this word. And that's primarily and fundamentally the way God guides our lives through his holy, wonderful scriptures. It's in this word that we learn about his character, his values, his passions, and they form the guardrails for our lives, I think, as we move forward. But it's not the only way he guides us. Number two, he also guides us through his providence. Dr. Bruce Waltke again, he says, there is an element to life that we do not control called providence. And that too is the benevolent guidance of God. He is at work in the circumstances of our lives, in both small ways and large. Sometimes we refer to it as chance, because that is sometimes the way his providence appears to us. Sometimes the Bible uses it that way. For example, in Ruth 2 verse 3, reads that Ruth chanced on the field of Boaz. But her biographer then makes it very clear that while it seemed to me a chance, it was the Lord who superintended her life. The very beginning of the story, the Lord ended the drought in Judah and gave his people food. At the end of the story, it was the Lord who opened her womb and gave her offspring. God never spoke to, spoke to Ruth directly through visions or words, but he always directed the affairs of her life according to his own purposes and for her good. In reality, nothing ever happens to the Christian by chance. There's no such thing as, oh, you've been lucky. I added that, by the way, not Mr. Walkie. God does not have accidents. Things happen by design, and this element of providence is evident throughout all of our lives. I think that's so helpful. Things don't happen in our lives just by chance. You, know, you can't say, oh, that was so lucky that you didn't get knocked over. No, no God, God was involved in that. His providence is involved in our lives and so chance really doesn't exist into the sovereignty of God, but what does exist is his providence. And that is one of the ways, I believe, that God guides us. As it says there in Psalm 32, verse 8, part B, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. There's this sense of his, his providence. You, know, you go ahead and make your decisions, but I'm going to ensure your foot doesn't slip, that it's planted in a certain place at a certain time for my glory and you're good. You know, sometimes in Scripture we see God doing that by preventing things, by literally stopping things, by hemming us in both behind and before in a way that it, it stops. So if you see Joseph, you know, Joseph is, is rocking along with his, with his brothers. He thinks he's the star of the show. You know, he's a bit of a, bit of a brat, really, when, he's, when you start out and you, and you enter into his story. You know, he's just like, hey, dudes, I know I'm the youngest, but bow to me. You know, it's not going to go well for him when he does that. But as far as he's concerned, God is going to bless his life because that's what his dad's saying, that's what's been prophesied over him. But next thing he knows, his brothers have thrown him in a deep well, his dad thinks he's dead, and his brothers have sent him off to Egypt as a slave. Well, Joseph goes along with that, he hasn't got any choice, he's in chains, he's bound up, he's there for an extremely long time, it seems to be going well for him, but then he gets accused of effectively sleeping with part of his wife, he ends up in jail. He's in jail for months and months and months. And it can look on the face of it, can it not? This is, this is well outside of God's providence. What on earth is going on? If you were Joseph, 
How would you feel? And yet it was through all of that that Joseph went on to become the Prime Minister. And it was through that, in God's providence, that the very people of God were saved from the famine and drought that came. That's why right at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph says to his brothers, because they think that Joseph is going to kill them, Joseph says, I'm not going to kill you, because although what you meant for harm, God meant for good. He became aware, even through trial, God's, God's providence. He's the one. He's the one that's presenting, preventing things. Paul was exactly the same. Different times he wanted to go different places. He got shipwrecked and beaten up so he couldn't go. You know, imagine how that feels if that's you. And yet he recognised, well, you know what? Behind the grimace of providence lies the smiling face of God. I'm going to trust him. I believe he's hemming me in, both behind and before. God does that sometimes. I think he still does that today. The job that you're really hoping to get. The interview goes great and you think, oh, I think I pretty much smashed it. And they come back and say, I'm sorry, no, we haven't given you the job, we're giving it to somebody else. And you think, what? what? What's going on? Does God not love me? Is he, is, he, is, he, is he punishing me or something? Or the house that you keep applying for because you want to move out and time's kind of running out and, and there's this really nice house that you, you know, your wife walks into and she goes, this is, this is my dream home. As you just think, please, Jesus, if there's any way, can we make sure we get this house? And then they tell you straight away, I'm sorry, it's unavailable, it's already gone. What? How how does this work? What's going on now? Or relationships. You know, you're convinced that this one is the one and that the one decides that they're not interested in you. And you think, God, what, what are you doing? God does that. He prevents us. Sometimes in a way that we enjoy, many times in a way we do not. But I do that as a dad to a kid. Because if we let particularly our foster kids do what they wanted, they would drown in the pool by one o'clock. But there's time when you go, no, I'm sorry, we're leaving the gates up. And they cry, I want to go to the pool. No, no, we're not going to do that. But from their perspective, I'm just a bad guy. But I'm helping. I'm serving. I'm, I'm preventing. And God does that too. He prevents, but he also, I think, presents. He presents things to us in our lives then, opportunities that we never saw coming, doesn't he? How many times have we experienced not getting the house that we might have wanted to pursue and then God provides a better one for us? We don't get the job. I remember once going for a job. It was, um, I'd left university and I realised I wasn't quite as good as I thought I was. So I applied for like hundreds of jobs and, and like, most of the time I didn't get any letters back. It was quite demotivating. And I went for this job just in a mail room, just sticking stamps on. I didn't even get that. I'm like, is this why I went to university? I, I can stick a stamp on. Look, it's fine. And I didn't even get that. And yet God taught me things in that time. And I ended up actually going back to that same place, actually in a different department as one of the managers. And I just think, isn't that funny? I couldn't get stamped, but I could get that job. And God's provident. He oversees things. He prevents things. He presents things. One example of this presenting providence is the story of a man called Michael Bordeaux. And just listen to his story. It says, Michael Bordeaux was studying Russian at Oxford. His Russian teacher, Dr. Zernov, sent him a letter he had received because he thought that it would interest young Michael. It was a letter detailing persecutions of Christians behind the Iron Curtain. The letter was written very simply, with no adornment, And although Michael was not involved at that time with any work in Russia, as he read it, he felt like he was hearing the true voice of the persecuted church. And the letter then concluded simply with the names of Arava and Pranina. 
In August 1964 then, Michael went on a trip to Moscow and on his first evening there he met up with old friends who detailed how the persecutions were getting worse. They told him that now now one church in particular, the old church of St. Peter and St. Paul, had been demolished. They suggested that he go and see it for himself. So he took a taxi and arrived at dusk. When he came to the square where he had remembered a very beautiful church, he found nothing except a 12-foot-high fence which hid the rubble where the church had been. Over on the other side of the square were two women. He was eager to talk to them to learn more about what had gone on and so he approached them. They asked him, who are you? He replied, I'm from England. I've come to find out what is happening here in the Soviet Union. And so they invited him to come home with them so they could talk. They took him to the house of a lady who asked him why he had come. He explained that he had received a letter from the Ukraine via Paris handed to him by his Russian teacher from two ladies called Varava and Pranina. As he said those names, there was silence. He wondered if he had said something wrong. But the woman just pointed in quite amazement and said, well, this is Varava and this is Pranina. The two women who Michael had met at the church were indeed the two authors of the letter. The population of Russia is over 140 million. The Ukraine, from where the letter was written, is over 800 miles from Moscow. Michael Bordeaux had flown from England six months after the letter had been written. He and the women would not have met had either party arrived at the demolished church an hour earlier or an hour later. And yet this was one of the ways that God called Michael Bordeaux to set up his life's work as head of Keston College, a research unit at Oxford University devoted to helping persecuted believers in communist lands. God guides us through his word, but he also guides us through his providence. And I think that story highlights that. Just how God not only prevents, but he sometimes presents, he does things in our lives that we weren't anticipating, that we're just getting on through life in, but you realise afterwards this was a divine setup. He was bringing me there all along. He was guiding my hand. That's what we can say with the Proverbs 16 verse 9. In his heart a man plans his steps, but the Lord determines his steps. It's the Lord. He grounds our feet. God not only guides us through his word, he also guides us through his providence. But even that's not all. Number three, God also guides us through the compelling of the Holy Spirit. Now we need to understand this is without doubt subservient to the word and so mistakes can be made, which I'll talk about in a moment. But just because mistakes can be made in understanding and grasping how the Holy Spirit compels us doesn't mean we should throw the baby out of the bathwater. Because the baby of the Holy Spirit compelling us is definitely in the Bible which is guidance point number one. The Holy Spirit operates in that way. The Bible clearly teaches us that when we become Christians, the Spirit of God comes to reside in our hearts. And he does. Ephesians 1 verse 14 says, The Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. He comes to literally live in our lives. He changes and transforms us by his grace. He increasingly reveals then Christ's presence to us and illuminates his work. He gives us boldness in our evangelistic witness. He aids us as we seek to grow and become more like Jesus. As we go through the process of sanctification, the Holy Spirit is actively involved and the Holy Spirit gives us gifts for the building up of the local church. 
So that as each one plays plays their part and uses the gifts that God's given us, the church is built up in love. The Holy Spirit does many, many things and we must add to that list an understanding that the Holy Spirit is also the means by which God guides us. Because Philippians 2 verse 13, which we studied just a few months ago, and we were going through that letter, says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God isn't just far off. No, he works in you, often unseen, to will and to work for his good pleasure. He compels us. He guides us at different times. You know, for me then, the compelling of the Holy Spirit hasn't been an audible voice. You know, sometimes you you talk to people, and I'm not knocking it, but sometimes you talk to people and, and they say, you know, oh, and then I said this to God and this is what he said to me, and then I said this, and I was just having a sandwich, and then I said this, and he said this to me, and you think, wow, God just... It just doesn't speak to me like that. I don't, I'm not having those sort of, I mean, wow. It sounds like a phone call. I've never quite had a, a phone call with the Lord. But what I have experienced on many occasions under the compelling of the Holy Spirit is that sense that this is what the Lord wants me to do. And often that sense comes with a deep joy, which comes with a, a joy and a peace and a faith relating to a specific decision. I've experienced that many, many times. Times when I know God is stirring something in my heart. He's directing something in my heart. And as I pursue that with grace, I find that that decision either goes away or it's something that I feel increased joy and peace and faith to take. I think that's the way he works. It's the way he compels us at different times in our lives. I remember then when I was becoming a pastor. My pastor at the time and was mentoring me. I didn't really know why he was mentoring me. I mean, genuinely, I really just thought it was nice to spend some time with him. And he gave me some books to read. So I'm like, sure, that's, that sounds great. Are they free? They're free, great, I'll come. Is it lunch? Great, I'm there. And so I was spending time with him at different times. And he said, eventually, he just said to me, Dave, what do you want to do with your life? I said, man, I don't, I don't know. 20, 20. Um, I don't know, I haven't really thought about it too much. I don't want to do engineering, I know that, but... I know, I'm open to a few other things. Maybe sell mortgages, quite like that. Quite like people, spend time with people. And he said, all right. Well, maybe pray about it. See what God does and see what he stirs in your heart. So I said, okay. So I was engaged to Emma at the time. I was certainly going out with Emma at the time. And I said to him, oh, Pete's talking to me about what I want to do in my life. I'm praying about it, sort of half-hearted. I said, oh, Emma, it would be good if you could pray about it. And, And one night, I'm on the way home from work, going to see Emma. It was quite late at night. And as I'm on the way... And to see Emma, I was not thinking about the Lord. I was not pursuing the Lord in that moment. I'm just thinking about what might be for dinner when I arrive. And yet I sensed the Lord with me in a tangible way. And I saw a vision of a shepherd leading his sheep. And that strong sense in my heart that God was calling me to lay my life down to serve his people. And so I arrived at Emma's house. I was crying. I'm like, this has just happened to me. And she thought I'd had an accident or something. She said, you should phone Pete, pastor. So I phoned him and said, Pete, I, I think God might be calling to be a pastor. This is what's just happened. He said, it's about time you figured it out. <laughs> Let's start thinking about pastor's college. like, pastor, what's that? I didn't even know there was one. But that's how it started. It was God ministering to me in a way that then became real and, and really got traction with joy and faith. Coming to Australia was very similar. I'm not going to tell you the story because I've told you many times, but I'm the executive pastor of Christchurch. I'm just getting on with my life. The intention would have been long-term for me to take over Sovereign Grace UK and run that and take on Christchurch. 
And that was great. And I'm a hobbit, so I'm quite happy to stay there for the rest of my life and die there and never travel anywhere. That's fine. I really didn't mind. And yet just that one breakfast with Emma where she asked me, what type of guy might be needed to lead Australia? I'm talking to her about it. She says, well, you sound like that type of guy to me. And as she said that, we both experienced the Holy Spirit. And just an awareness that I think we're moving to Australia. Where is it? <laughs> and it was like that. I remember, I remember we went home and we're just like, we've got to get this out of our heads because this is just too much to handle. I can't cope with this. And we turned the TV on. It was the Wiggles live from Sydney. And then we turned that off and it was wanted down under and they're looking around Sydney like, this is just sick. This is too much. But that's the way God directs us so often that we, we know his presence. We're, same with them when Liam and Savannah... And when we got asked if we wanted to foster them long-term or pursue taking them long-term, we'd had them one weekend. And then after that one weekend, they rang us up. We were only meant to be doing a respite. They rang us and said, hey, you know, they seem to have had a good time. How would you feel about pursuing having them until they're 18? They're two and four. I think, well, um, yeah, uh, maybe. And they said, well, let's come over and chat. So they came over and chatted with us and they said, look, what would be really helpful is if you could kind of let us know, kind of by the end of this week, um, and really, you know, what we need to, it's not a guarantee that they'll definitely come to you for till they're 18, but we'd really want you to commit that they would be there till they're 18 if that's the way the court case went. And I remember, I didn't sleep much that night. Emma certainly didn't sleep that much that night. It was just, wow, we've got to, we've got to give them a decision. And this is epic. Going from a family of five to seven, it was like, wow, we, you know, we're used to lying on the beach in luxury while the children in heaven just swim and we sit there and drink champagne or something. But, but all of a sudden we're aware, I'm going to be wiping somebody else's bum again. I'm not sure I want to do that. Again, I'm not sure I want to get up in the nights in the way we used to. And we couldn't decide and we got up that morning and we were, we were praying together and I was drawing Emma and she drew me and we were just like, man, this is, this is just so major. And we, so we prayed about it and I was on the way to work. Actually, and I was listening to, to the Hillsong so the latest CD and the song where it just talks about amazing grace. And I was just so affected. And as I was driving along, and that chorus came on of amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And I knew. We now call that Liam and Savannah song. Because I knew God wants us to do for these two kids what he's done for us spiritually. So I remember calling Emma and saying, we should say yes. She said, okay, we'll say yes. That's the way God's directed us at different times. Just knowing his nearness, knowing his clarity, and then that decision coming with faith, and a peace and a joy where we know even if there's hardships ahead, that's okay because that's what God wants us to do. And so we'll walk in that. And he also guides me in, in that and others in that, not always in the favourable way. Sometimes it's a no. I remember when I got all excited when this church was about two years old about moving this church to North Ride. I mean, I think I just in the trailer one too many times and it was just like, we've got to get out of this school. We've just got to get a facility uh, one of my friends contacted me and said, oh, there's this church moving out of this great facility in North Ride. It could have been a mouldy chip for a lot. You know, I was just like, we're going. This sounds amazing. The Holy Spirit's clearly in it. And so I went and visited it and I thought, this is awesome. 
this is great, you know, we wouldn't be able to have a trailer, there's just the storage and stuff. And I remember sitting with the leadership team, getting all excited, saying, this is, this is, this is just fantastic, the Lord has provided this facility. And I realised quite quickly, with both them and my wife, I didn't seem to be getting the Holy Spirit traction that I was looking for. And they were looking at me as if, like, are you serious? Um, and none of them were keen. So I remember them saying, well, maybe let's pray about it some more, and if you really believe God's in it, then we you know, we'll support you in that, but we're just not sure. So I prayed about it some more and within 24 hours I realised I think I'd just eaten too much cheese and done the trailer one too many times. And I just said, God, actually, the faith and peace that I had for this, it's not actually there anymore. So thank you for your counsel. Thank you for your guidance. You are right. And I look back on that and we decided to call the whole thing off. And I look back on that now and think, praise God that God guides like that. Sometimes yes. Sometimes very clearly lack of peace, lack of joy, lack of faith and a no. He guides us by his word, but he also guides us by his providence and the compelling of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, I know when it comes to providence and when it comes to the compelling of the Holy Spirit, we can be very, very wrong, can we not? It's very subjective. So that's why for some people they freak out and think, well, it's subjective. Let's run. The Bible doesn't talk about running. It talks about embracing it. But yes, we can be wrong. We can misread providence. They did it in the Bible too. Jonah chapter 1. Jonah's been told to get to Nineveh to preach the good news. That's in the east. So where does Jonah go? Tarshish. Where's that? In the west. He's like, you must be joking. I'm going this way. I'm going as far away from that place. I don't even like the Ninevites. He's got a serious attitude problem with them. And if God's calling him to do that, then I'm going that way. So he arrives at Joppa. Joppa's a port but it's not a port like a common day port where you've got boats leaving all the time. They're, they're leaving very irregularly and as he arrives in the port, there's a boat about to leave. So what does he think? God's in this! Thank you, Jesus, for providing me this boat. What happened? Well, it was shipwrecked. It was eaten by fish. It was a long journey and he ended up going to Nineveh anyway. You know, he read Providence as that boat, but he was wrong. You see the same with David and David's men in 1 Samuel 24. And there's this incident where obviously Saul wants to kill David and so David is, is guarded by men. And there's this one time where Saul actually goes to the bathroom in a cave. It's a really cool story. He goes to the bathroom in a cave and David's men go, the king is in there. So let's go in there and let's kill him. This is your chance. God has set this up. And David makes it very clear to them, we are never to hurt or harm the Lord's anointed. Let him go. David was into protecting his own life, but he wasn't into killing his life. And yet the man had read it as God's providence, setting this up so that we can kill him. We can misread providence. I get nervous sometimes when people say, well, you know what, I'm not sure what the word says, and I don't know, you know, I'm just, to be honest... I'm just thinking if God opens the door, we're going, and if he doesn't, then we're not. I'm always reminded of the boat in Jonah when I hear that. So you think that's, that's not enough, I don't think. It's an aspect, but not enough by itself, because we can get that wrong. We can misread properly. We can also misread the compelling of the Holy Spirit. One, uh, Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says that our hearts are deceitful above all things. And you know, our, our, our hearts, as Calvin says, they are idol factories. There are things that we think are the spirit which are actually our flesh. 
things that we just feel like we've got to have and then instantaneously we believe God wants us to got to have them too and then we dictate everything that way. We can misread that. And when we get tired and eat too much cheese, it gets even worse. I'm aware of the potential to misread providence and misread the compelling of the Holy Spirit, but more importantly, God is aware of that. And so there's a fourth way of the, which he guides us. It's laced throughout Scripture to guard against the misreading of providence and the compelling of the Holy Spirit. And it's this. Number four, he guides us through the wise counsel of others. And I think this really is so often the missing crown in the jewel, so to speak, when it comes to making decisions and being guided by God. We can grasp points one to three real quick and say, this is awesome. God guides us by his word. He guides us through providence. And he guides us through the Holy Spirit. Bingo! Well, I believe he's calling me to do this. See ya. We can so grasp those points that we start to create a Jesus and me mentality. And yet in all reality, nowhere in Scripture is it Jesus and me. In Scripture it is Jesus and we all the time. There's a community going on. And there's a need for other people when it comes to making decisions. Not so that we can find out from that person whether we're allowed to do that. We're not asking for permission. But we are saying, you know what, one of the primary ways God guides me is not only through his word and providence and compelling the Holy Spirit, it's also through people. So listen to these verses. Hear it for yourselves. Proverbs 1 verse 5 says, Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance. Proverbs 11.14 For lack of guidance, a nation falls, but many advisers make victory sure. Proverbs 12, verse 15 The way of the fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 13, verse 10 Wisdom is found in those who take advice. Proverbs 19, verse 20 Listen to advice and accept instruction, and in the end you will be wise. Proverbs 20, verse 18, make plans by seeking advice. If you wage war, obtain guidance. Proverbs 15, 22, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. It's quite compelling, isn't it? And yet we live in such an individualistic culture. I remember when I was at school, I was 11 years old, I went to a selective school, it was the Queen Elizabeth Royal Free Grammar School and I remember just wanting to tell everybody that's where I was going because it was so posh and you didn't have to pay for it we just didn't have any money anyway but it was a selective school and I got in and I remember just lining us all up for 11 years old um, year 7 in Britain and them just saying you guys are the top 10% of our county you can do anything you want if you put your minds to it I took that hook, line and sinker and thought yes that'll be that's me just do anything I want I was, I was being stoked in pride I was proud but I was being stoked and arrogant and fanned into flame. I wish that I hadn't brought that into my Christianity in the early years, but I did. I thought, well, God's told me, so I'm doing it. No sense that I could be wrong. No sense that it might be worth running it past somebody. The crowning glory of that was when I got engaged to a girl. Began out of the six weeks. I thought that was long enough. She was pretty. So she said yes, left university, bought a house, couldn't afford it, bought a car, couldn't afford it. She had some money, which I thought was great. And then six weeks before we were due to get married, she called the whole thing off and decided she wasn't interested anymore. 
and my whole world came crashing down. And this is one of the things that I wish I had learned prior to that moment. Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. One of the ways God guides us is through other people. We need each other. And we're not going to each other to say, oh, you know, do you mind if I do this? No, we're not asking for permission. But we're saying, hey, this is what I think the Lord may be laying on my heart. What do you think? What's your take? Do you think there's anything in the Bible that I'm misreading or misunderstanding in this? You know me. What's your perspective? Do you think this could be an idol? Do you think this is real? Or help me see, because I could be wrong. My heart is deceitful above all things. Help me see. We need that. The Bible makes it clear that everybody needs that. And so, folks, I want to encourage you. Open up your lives then to people this year. Make sure that's a factor for you. Now, pastorally and as a leadership team, if we can help you in any way, we'd love to, particularly for Brendan and I. The things that you just think, I'd love to get somebody's perspective on this. Great, we'd love to do that. You've also got your life group leaders, the, the husband and wife team that lead your life group. You know, all of these guys have been trained and entrusted pastorally by me in a sense to care for you and look after you and to guide you. Open up your lives to them. They're people who I trust, people who know God's word, people who are living it out. They're men and women that we can say, you know, what's your perspective on this? Maybe I could be getting it wrong. Outside of them, there's also this room is filled with godly, mature people. Find people who you trust, who are godly and mature, that you can say, hey, this is what I'm thinking about this question. What do you think? What's your perspective? I think there's nothing worse as a pastor than when you get a text to say, hey, just to let you know, I'm moving to the Gold Coast on Tuesday. And you text back, I'd love to get a coffee with you. Who have you spoken to? And they text back, I'm very busy and haven't had time to speak to anybody, but thanks for everything. And if you think that's far-fetched, that happened. And happens regularly in this culture. That's not what the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about slowing down and saying, hey, I'm wondering whether God might be putting on my heart to move away. I'm going to speak to my life group leader and their wife about that. See what they think. Maybe I'm just going through a bad season. What about my friends? I'm going to draw them in on it. Plans fail for lack of counsel. But with guidance, they succeed. It's one of the way God guides us and helps us and guards our lives and helps us. We're never asking for permission, but we're recognizing that that is one of the ways that God ministers to our lives and guides us by his grace. Now, whether you like it or not, life is full of decisions. Some minor which you never need counsel on. If there's chips or anything else in the pantry, take it. You know, there's some things in life you know you don't need counsel on. But there's other things we do. We need God's guidance, we need his advice, we need his help. And Psalm 32 verse 8 promises that God will watch over us and that God will guide us. And so folks, as you make your decisions then in faith, I want to encourage you, pursue his guidance. Pursue it in his word because thy word is a lamp unto your feet. This is the primary way that you will find him guiding you. Look at his providence. See where he's hemming you in, both behind and before, and trust that. Don't just point the finger at other people or circumstances and say, that really sucks. Be aware that God is providence, so whenever we're pointing the finger, we're ultimately pointing the finger at God, saying, you've screwed up. 
And that's not true. God never screwed it up. He always uses all things for our good and his glory, bringing things. And so often, behind the grimace of providence is his smiling face. Sometimes we just struggle to see it. Look for it in the compelling of the Holy Spirit. Is there anything he's putting on our hearts that's starting to cultivate and joy and a faith and a peace? And then take that by way of guidance to other people. And ask for their advice. Ask for their help. And here's what you can anticipate as you do those four things. What you can anticipate is that God will guide you. And I trust then that helps to bring certainty and clarity where there's so often uncertainty and confusion. Would we be guided by the Lord this year, amen? As a church, as individuals, and would we then truly follow his path for our lives? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that your guidance to us as we examine scripture is so clear. And Lord, isn't that just like you? As a wonderful father to his children, you're not trying to confuse us. You're trying to bring clarity. You're trying to bring peace and understanding. And so Lord, would we have ears to hear this today? And would we have hearts of humility to take this on today? Lord, would you guide us in our lives? Lord, we understand that our lives are not our own, so would we forsake guiding ourselves? And would we bow the knee to you as king and would we be guided by you? Would our lives then be kept safe and would they be used for your glory? In Jesus' precious name, amen.